Can I invite you to turn to Psalm 92, and you can find this in the Church Bibles on page 498. That's Psalm 92. Incidentally, if you've not yet heard Jonty's series, uh, brief Sunday school series on the Psalms, it lasted two weeks, finished last week. Can I recommend you listen to it? It's available now online. I found it very helpful, and I'm sure you will too. So that's Jonty's series on the Psalms. So, Psalm 92. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox, you have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies, my ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Before we look at that passage, uh, let's pray together. I'm going to use a prayer actually written 500 years ago by a reformer called Martin Bucher. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, that we may cherish it and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honour through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me begin by asking you a question this morning. How did you feel when you got up? I'm going to give you three alternatives. Alternative one... Did you feel, oh no, an early start, I'm really going to have to get a move on, but at least there's no Sunday school this morning, so that helps a bit. Option two, did you get up with great enthusiasm, thinking of the sheer privilege and delight of being able to worship 
God this morning? Or option three, were you somewhere in the middle? It is a great difficulty getting up on a Sunday morning, but at least we're going to meet together as a church this morning. I hope that what we're going to look at this morning will actually lead us and encourage us towards that middle option, the sheer delight and privilege of meeting together to praise God on a Sunday morning. And to do that, we're going to look at this psalm, which interestingly is the only psalm that has a particular heading at the top about the Sabbath. Uh, So let me tell uh, say at the beginning where we're going to go this morning in terms of our journey through this psalm. We're first going to look at delighting in God on the Sabbath in particular, and that is verses 1 to 5. We're then going to widen our view in verses 6 to 9 as we see what the unbeliever, what the unbeliever delights in. And then finally, we're going to broaden still further in verses 10 to 15 and look at delighting in God as the secret of life. So let me start by reading verses 1 to 4 again for us. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hand, I sing for joy. What the writer of this psalm is saying is that it's a delight to even contemplate, to even just think about the worship of God's people on the Sabbath. And if that's true of Old Testament believers, how much more should it be true for us today? So let's pause for a moment before we go any further and ask a further question. Why is it that we as Christians have a Lord's Day, have a Sabbath? It's significant that the Sabbath was created in the Old Testament long before Israel and long before Moses was around even. It was created before sin was even in the world. The Sabbath was created when Adam was without sin in the Garden of Eden. We read in Genesis that God, in creating the world, rested on the seventh day of creation. Now, there's a great deal uh, that we could talk about around this whole area, and you might remember the very helpful sermon that John T. did recently on the fourth commandment. So I'm not going to go into any of that this morning, but I do want to pick up one particular point. In Scripture, we, realize, we read that God rested not because he needed a rest, but because we needed rest. This is what Jesus says of the Sabbath. It was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying, God created the Sabbath because we needed it. And the Sabbath was created one day in seven for rest, for refreshment, and above all, for delight in God. Now, of course, we should not just delight in God on a Sunday, but every day of the week as well. And it's interesting, isn't it, that verse 2 
talks about declaring your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. And yet, the Lord's Day is a special and very particular occasion when we should delight in God and worship him, and worship him together as his people. In the Old Testament, God commanded his covenant people to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. And a central part of the Sabbath in the Old Testament was the gathering of God's people on this particular day of the week in response to God's requirement that they do so. That's in Leviticus. You can find that. And then throughout the New Testament, we read consistently of God's people meeting together on the first day of the week. And that, of course, is the day of Christ's resurrection. Now, sadly, these days, it's not uncommon for people to go to church for what they can get out of it. Uh, I still remember many years ago uh, hearing of one particular person explain why they needed to go to two different churches, one in the morning and one in the evening. And the reason was because what they wanted to get out of Sunday, they could not get out of one particular church. They needed to go to two particular different types of church to do that. By contrast, when we come to worship, we should want to not get in a selfish sense, but we should want to give God the thanks and the praise due to his name. Indeed, our greatest desire, our greatest joy should be to meet with God, to have fellowship with him, to know him better and to delight in him. Now, I'm sure it's true of all of us that we don't always feel this way, but this should be our aspiration as Christians. Interestingly, um, I wonder what you think, but if you look around in society for the greatest demonstration today of delight, of collective joy, as it were, it's probably watching a football match in the Premiership. And yet the celebration and excited joy that fans show when their team scores should be nothing, absolutely nothing, compared with the infinitely greater delight in knowing God. Verse 2 speaks about your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Verse 4 reads, You, O Lord, have made me glad by your work and at the works of your hands I sing for joy. And the Hebrew word that encompasses all this, you may have heard of it, it's hesed. And hesed wraps up in itself all the positive attributes of God. That is his covenantal love, his faithfulness, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his loyalty, all of which are totally undeserved by us the Christian believer. And if that is so, how can we not have complete delight in our wonderful God this morning? As verse 1 reads, it is good to give thanks to the Lord and sing praises to your name, O Most High. So in verses 1 to 4, we see the great privilege of delighting in God on the Lord's day. And then verse 5 expands this slightly, because in verse 5, 
we see how delighting in God brings with it thoughtfulness and wonder, to be awed and overwhelmed by the scale of God's design. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. And I wonder, is that our experience? Are we amazed by the scale of God's design in nature and in the animal kingdom, in the heavens, in the wonders of science and scientific discovery? Uh, Living in the country as we do, uh, there are obviously no streetlights in our village. And if it's a clear night, you can actually see the sky filled with countless stars. And yet, breathtaking as this is, and it is breathtaking, it's just a minuscule, a tiny view of the wonders of the heavens of God's design. But moving on, do you see that in verse 6, the psalmist now draws a clear distinction between the believer, that is the Christian, and the unbeliever. So having reflected on the greatness of God's work, he follows up with these words, the stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand. Now we read from the ESV, and that actually softens the words in the original Hebrew. Stupid man doesn't quite catch it. The original Hebrew describes this person as a brute, as a brute. So the King James Version of 1611 has this for verse 6. A brutish man knoweth not, neither does a fool understand. So the psalmist is comparing the unbeliever, as it were, to an animal who has little or no understanding. Just to take the illustration of living in the countryside a bit further, another effect is that we actually have cows uh, in the field next door to our house. Now imagine the cows at night. What are they doing? They're either eating chewing the cud, or sleeping. What they absolutely do not do is to look into the sky and think how wonderful are the deeds of the Lord. And that is the type of comparison that's being made by the psalmist here. The unbeliever cannot understand. He cannot know about the wonders of God's sovereignty and God's design. He is unable to ascribe the works of the Lord to God. Rather, if he thinks about it at all, he may attribute the wonderful works of the Lord to the impersonal workings of blind chance. As verse 6 puts it, the stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand. But there's more, because in this section, up to verse 9, a distinct contrast to the Christian is made. Uh, We're looking at what the unbeliever delights in 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 these verses as distinct to what the Christian delights in. And verse 7 in particular develops this theme. So let me read it again, but I'm going to stop halfway through. And though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, I'm going to stop there for a moment. What might this flourishing look like that the unbeliever flourishes in? Luke chapter 12, in the words of Jesus, I think explains this very well. 
Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of its, his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I'm sure you agree, isn't that not total condemnation of today's materialistic society? And it's actually a stern warning to all of us today because we can get sucked in to the mentality of the world so easily, can't we? That new iPhone looks so good, doesn't it? And that new car model is great, it's stylish, and it's bigger than the one I've got at the moment. It would be very helpful to have a bigger car to get uh, the family in more easily. I wonder whether a question we should be asking ourselves when we see all these advertisements swamping us through social media, on TV or whatever, is this. What lie am I being sold as I actually look and receive these advertisements? Don't let the world squeeze you into its mould. Here let me continue the second half of verse 7 which I stopped as I was reading it. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, and then the second part, they are doomed to destruction forever. We're going to come back in a moment to the idea of true flourishing in the later part of the psalm, but here we have the unbelievers' temporary growth and then disappearance forever. Psalm 90 verses 5 and 6 read, You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. And Isaiah chapter 40 verses 6 to 8. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Generally speaking, I think it's true that the unbeliever lives only for the present. uh, When life is very alive, when one's enjoying what's going on. Growing like grass and flourishing. But the unbeliever does not understand that grass will become dry and withered and then be cut down and burned. These are truly solemn words, and I do wonder sometimes whether as Christians we don't grasp the full significance 
of what is being said here as we read these verses. And as if to underline this, the psalmist continues in verses 8 and 9. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. I wonder whether you've noticed the contrast here. Evildoers are doomed to destruction forever, but the Lord is on high forever. God is exalted, raised up over all, over all evildoers, and indeed over everyone. So the reason God's enemies will perish and evildoers will be scattered is not due so much to the ordinary course of nature, but specifically due to God's judgment. Evildoers have exalted themselves against God. And although completely senseless as it is, as we saw in verse 6, they took it upon themselves to refuse God his rightful place. And now, as the psalmist says, they are no more, but God continues to be exalted. These words are so solemn, aren't they? Because it's not as if there were three categories of people. That is, Christians, unbelievers, and evildoers. And I don't say this in any way lightly because it's very serious. But those who are not Christians, who are unbelievers, are also, by definition, evildoers. They refuse to give God his rightful place and are due for destruction. And I wonder, should that not drive us all the more to evangelism, to spreading the good news of Jesus and his saving work? Just look at the city of Leeds with its three quarters of a million people and how many people are unbelievers in this city. So let me pause there because these are solemn words. So far we've looked at delighting in God on the Sabbath, as we saw in verses 1 to 5. In verses 6 to 9, we've seen what the unbeliever delights in and how he is doomed to destruction. And now finally, on a very positive note, verses 10 to 15, we'll look at delighting in God as the secret of life. So let me read verses 10 to 15 again. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So in these verses, we see a series of wonderful images showing how delight in God is indeed the secret of life the secret of true flourishing. And significantly, the word used in these verses for flourish is exactly the same word used earlier in the psalm to describe the transitory flourishing of evildoers who will wither 
and die. So, the contrast could not be greater. Let's look at these images briefly in turn. In verse 10, we see the strong horn of a wild ox and the anointing with fresh oil. Now, this may seem rather strange to us in the 21st century, but in the Bible, the horn is often used as an image of strength. Here we see the believer raising his or her head high at the downfall of God's enemies. At the same time, the head of the Christian is anointed with oil. What does that mean? It basically talks about the Christian being consecrated. Now, that's uh, maybe a strange word to us, but let me put it this way. Maybe being commissioned, being set apart, being sent out by God to serve him, as it were, as a living sacrifice. Probably know the words from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's the first image. The following two images are all to do with trees. Uh, Firstly, in verse 12, we meet the palm tree. Now, I'm sure you've seen photos, pictures in films or whatever of palm trees in the Middle East. Uh, The growth of the palm tree would be very slow compared to the growth of grass, as used to describe the unbeliever. But what distinguishes the palm tree is its endurance. It continues to flourish for many years. And it's a telling picture, isn't it? Uh, We see the palm tree standing strong, sending all its strength upwards and growing downwards as it takes what water there is in the drought of the surrounding desert. It's like the godly Christian who delights in the Lord, independent of the outside circumstances that are around him. So that's the palm tree. And then we have the cedar in Lebanon. Um, As I'm sure you know, King Solomon used cedars uh, to help build the temple. And there are all sorts of descriptions of cedars in the Old Testament. Let me just run through some of them very quickly. Uh, Durable, that's in Isaiah. Graceful and beautiful in Psalm 80. High and tall in Amos. Fragrant, Song of Psalms. And spreading wide, that's in Psalm 80 again. But what a wonderful description, isn't that, of, of a righteous person, of the believer who is made right with God through the saving blood of Jesus and is living a life of fruitful discipleships. And interestingly, where are these trees planted? We read that they're planted in the house of the Lord. That is the temple where God dwells. I'm sure you've heard of the great 19th century preacher, C.S. Spurgeon. And he described this very well uh, as the in terms of its significance to our lives as Christians. I'm going to read what he he wrote. It's a bit of a long quote, but it's a good one, so it's worth repeating. 
In the courtyards of oriental houses, trees were planted, and being thoroughly screened would be likely to bring forth their fruit to perfection in trying seasons. Even so, those who by grace are brought into communion with the Lord shall be likened to trees planted in the Lord's house, and will find it good to their soul. No heart has so much joy as that which abides in the Lord Jesus. If a man or woman abides in Christ, they bring forth much fruit. Those who dwell in habitual fellowship with God shall become men or women of full growth, rich in grace, happy in experience, mighty in influence, honoured and honourable. Much depends upon the soil in which a tree is planted. Everything, in our case, depends upon our abiding in the Lord Jesus and deriving all our supplies from him. If we ever really grow in the courts of the Lord's house, we must be planted there. For no tree grows in God's garden self-sown. Once planted of the Lord, we shall never be rooted up. But in his courts we shall take root downward and bring forth fruit upward to his glory forever. So in the light of the encouragement we've seen with these illustrations, how shall we then take verse 14? They shall still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Does that mean that the Christian will discover the secret of eternal physical youth? I suspect not. But what the psalmist, I think, is talking about here is that those who delight in God will flourish in old age, in their love of the Lord, in the spiritual fruit that they produce. Galatians chapter 6 speaks of the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And against such there is no law. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes here, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I think this is what bearing uh, fruit in old age is all about. And it's relevant to all of us, I think, whatever age we are here this morning. Let me give you a couple of examples which have encouraged me in the past. Um, when I worked at Oak Hill, we were visited by J.I. Packer. I'm sure you've heard the name. He wrote uh, the very famous Christian book, uh, Knowing God. Now, he was well into his 70s when he visited the college, and I was immediately impressed by the generosity of his comments and behaviour. And he was particularly generous in, in the way in which he referred to Christian leaders of his generation. Now, I don't know whether you're a student of uh, church history, but the 1960s had produced great upheavals in the evangelical wing of the church. And Packer had been on one side and had strongly disagreed with some other people. And yet he talked uh, in his old age with the utmost generosity and Christian graciousness towards those folk. And then finally, and uh, almost hidden really, I particularly remember that a former church we went to, there were a group of old ladies who were completely inconspicuous 
and certainly very easy to miss as members of the congregation. And yet they were all tremendous prayer warriors and faithfully held up day by day and at the monthly prayer meeting where they were always present, the ministry of the church in their prayers day by day. So just two examples of folk who were older but showed, I think, uh, flourishing in their behaviour. So do you get here the picture of delighting in God as indeed the secret of life, the secret of human flourishing that actually leads the world standing? And then finally, as we finish, verse 15. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And I wonder whether you see the link here to the start of the psalm in verse 2, where it says, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. We've actually come, I think, full circle from where we began. Verse 2 speaks of declaring with our lips the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. Verse 15 does exactly that, to declare that the Lord is upright, and yet 15 actually goes rather further than that. Because it's not just declaring the greatness of the Lord, it's actually in experiencing him in a real way. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So when we meet Sunday by Sunday, may we continue to declare with our lips the greatness of the Lord. But even more than that, may we also demonstrate with our lives that the Lord is indeed our rock, one in whom our complete delight can be found. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for the wonder of your word this morning. Give us, we pray, great enthusiasm as we think about the sheer privilege and delight of being able to worship you as your people. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for the wonderful descriptions in this psalm of folk who delight in you. We particularly think of the cedars of Lebanon as describing the righteous person, the believer who is made right with God through the saving blood of Jesus. And so we pray, make us like those cedars of Lebanon in our daily walk with you, strong and durable, graceful and beautiful, high and tall, spreading wide in our witness for you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.